This is Self Work, and I'm Dr. Margaret Rutherford. At Self Work, we'll discuss psychological and emotional issues common in today's world and what to do about them. I'm Dr. Margaret, and Self Work is a podcast dedicated to you taking just a few minutes today for your own self work. Hello and welcome or welcome back to Self Work. This is Dr. Margaret Rutherford. I'm a clinical psychologist and I've lived and worked in Fayetteville, Arkansas for almost 30 years. But I started Self Work about five and a half years ago in order to extend the walls of my practice so that people could understand more about what therapy is, what therapy is not. I wanted to reach those of you who might already be in therapy and very interested in your own self work. To those of you who might be looking for answers because you've just been diagnosed or someone that you love has been, maybe you're having a relationship issue that is just difficult, but also to a third group of you, to those of you who might mm, believe that therapy is really weak and it's kind of weird and it's only done by really strange people. (laughs) Well, I've been called strange before, but hopefully what I can offer you here at Self Work isn't therapy, but it's a little taste of what therapy might be like for you as we learn together about mental health issues and struggles and dynamics. Today, we're going to focus on three skills that are ego skills or what compose ego strengths. And there are a lot of definitions out there of all three. It's self-regulation, self-control, and self-motivation. But mainly what I want to cover in this 285th episode of self-work is how you can develop or practice these skills as always what you can do about it. I often hear people flatly state, I just don't have any self-control or I can't seem to get motivated, or when I get angry, I don't know how to rein it in. First, you probably weren't taught how to do or think or feel those things. Obviously, addictions and other mental illnesses make some of this much more difficult. Try telling someone in a full-on manic state to get control of themselves, or someone who's severely depressed to snap out of it. That's not going to happen, as that energy state has established itself in their own neuropsychological patterns. And in order to see things more clearly, they need to be in a more rational and stable state of mind. But today in this episode, sponsored by AG1 Athletic Greens, we're going to talk about normal issues with self-regulation, self-control, and self-motivation. Things that people both with and without actual mental illness have to struggle with. We're going to define how they interact and how you can practice these skills so when you need them, they're available to you. Practice is what's needed. Rehearsal, not only to prove to yourself that you can change and grow, but to give your brain a chance to build new neurological circuitry. The listener voicemail for today, again, using the SpeakPipe app that can be found in your show notes or on my website, features a mom who feels completely disrespected by her now adult children and asks if I have any advice. What would you say? So let's sit back, relax, or drive, or whatever you do. When you listen to self-work and let's talk about self-regulation, self-control and self-motivation. When I was a young girl, I hated something my mother did to me all the time. She would take her finger, she'd be standing in front of me, and on my forehead, she'd write the letters T-H-I-N-K. I mean, I would be embarrassed, a little humiliated, but that word, think, probably did help me remember to slow down my emotional impulses. 
if memory serves, I always wanted to be the one who would swing ever higher on the swing set or do more and more of whatever I was doing. And she obviously thought it was best, and she was probably right, that I might aim for a more normal pace. Now, I actually find it quite ironic that so much of my job involves deep thought, forming clear ideas to convey to others. I guess I do a lot of thinking now. But today on self-work, I want to talk about self-regulation, self-control, and self-motivation, how these are tied together, at least from my perspective. And of course, as always, I'll pull in the work of others at the same time. I've pulled from everyone from Tony Robbins to Mark Twain to Andrew Huberman for this one. There's one more important factor, however. It's the shame so many people feel that these skills are something that seems to have eluded them. And so they give up on themselves, on their goals, or even their dreams. Maybe you're one of those people, or you go through times where you find it hard to believe that you have what it takes to reach a goal or a dream, and you project onto others that they must have something you don't possess. Well, what I'd like to suggest to you today is that if it's true, maybe they were very well-parented, so they got to practice developing that aspect in themselves with parental care and guidance. But I've certainly known many a person who had a rough childhood and certainly weren't taught any of these self-skills. And they still did it. And you can too. You can borrow my optimism if you need it. But I think that with practice, anyone can make changes for the better. I've seen it in myself and in my patients. So let's get started. First, let's talk about self-regulation. I'll quote an article in Very Well Mind to give you a definition. Self-regulation can be defined in various ways. In the most basic sense, it involves controlling one's behavior, emotions, and thoughts in the pursuit of long-term goals. More specifically, emotional self-regulation refers to the ability to manage disruptive emotions and impulses. In other words, to think before acting. It also reflects the ability to cheer yourself up after disappointments and to act in a way consistent with your deepest held values. This is obviously what my mom was up to with her whole T-H-I-N-K thing, right? I think perhaps one of the most important aspects of self-regulation lies in that last sentence about acting in ways that are consistent with your deepest held values. You know, sometimes in couples work, I'll ask a couple to write down three things they individually value most in life. It could be honesty, gratitude, fairness, kindness. It could be anything. Then I'll have them talk about how they argue or how they approach conflict to imagine their last knockdown drag out with one another. And I'll ask, so does how you approach that fit with your values? Obviously, it usually doesn't, or they wouldn't be in my office in the first place. So again, we'll go through different ways that could approach conflict while honoring their values. It's very important. So pausing, giving an emotion or even a strong impulse time to die down, unless it's a true emergency, and wait so that you can choose how you're going to respond rather than react, makes self-regulation much more possible. It's also very important to identify your triggers, things that when they happen immediately, they send you into orbit or make you want to run away or withdraw. Because when you know your triggers, you can better recognize that you're walking in a minefield, at least for you. I'll give you an example. Let's say your partner cheated on you. They kissed someone else or did something that you basically stated didn't belong in your version of a committed relationship. And they're trying to regain your trust. 
Now, let's also say that happened when your partner was out of town on a business trip. So, there's your trigger. The next time they go on a business trip, or they're around that person, certainly, you need to recognize that you're both walking in a minefield and that extra care needs to be taken, extra effort needs to be given so that you can get through that time closer to one another. You'll build trust. I can't tell you how many people will say to me, well, that's silly. I said I was sorry and that it wouldn't happen again. Yet triggers exist. And there when a time, a place, a marker of some kind, maybe unconscious, maybe conscious, serves to pull you into an emotional place, often unwelcome. But if you know what they are, you can be much more alert to their potency for you. Now, there can be physical triggers like hunger or lack of sleep, but many are emotional and they're things from the past. And you'll be far closer to self-regulation if you recognize their power. What are other ways to self-modulate other than knowing your triggers? One way is through mindfulness, being aware of the present moment, paying attention non-judgmentally, and not allowing your mind to think of the past or of the future. This also takes practice. But it can help you learn how to calm yourself in the moment you're living, and thus it can reduce stress. Now, I'm also reading a book right now that I'm going to talk to the author about this week. It's called Chatter. And he points out that human beings being able to think longitudinally, to trace the past, to see how it affects the present, and avoid trouble in the future, is something that's given human beings a better chance of staying alive, frankly. So practicing mindfulness is important, but it's also just a tool in your arsenal for self-regulation. A third way of practicing self-regulation is the tried-and-true cognitive reframe. It's like you have a picture of something in your mind. It has its own frame. You take the frame off and you reframe it. You see it differently. Let's try this on for size. Let's say you're telling yourself your self-talk is, this is the worst day of my life or I'll never get over this. Instead, you can reframe that feeling, not in a weird, overly positive Pollyanna way, but you can say, I'm going to get through this day, but boy, it's terrifically hard and I'm not quite sure how I will. Or, I'm not sure I've ever felt this sad in my life. I'm going to need help to see my way through. You don't sugarcoat, but you try to modulate your response so that you don't catastrophize a situation or paralyze yourself with worry or a sense of being completely overwhelmed. Of course, some loss is paralyzing, at least at first, and you simply have to trudge through that slowly and with support. I get that. But again, identifying something as more positive rather than more negative, can help you handle it. Your self-talk matters. Before we go on, let's hear from Athletic Greens about a super offer they have only for self-work listeners. Our partner, AG1, has a product I use every day. I started taking Athletic Greens, frankly, because they were interested in sponsoring self-work, and I never recommend something to you without trying it first. With one scoop of AG1, whose taste is somewhere between sweet and tart to me, you'll get 75 high-quality minerals, vitamins, probiotics, adaptogens, and whole food source superfoods, which support everything from your gut to your immune system to your energy level. I love it because whether I'm home and about to go out for a walk or traveling and about to spend time with friends and family, I can start my day proactively, knowing I'm doing something for my own self-care. If you're like me, self-care can get lost for sure. In fact, Its founder, after having severe gut issues, realized he was taking over $100 a day worth of supplements 
which had their own very complicated dosage routine, so he created Athletic Greens. To make it easy, and because you're a self-work listener, Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is to visit athleticgreens.com slash self-work. Again, that's athleticgreens.com slash self-work to take ownership of your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. Thanks to AG1 for that. By the way, I use it every morning and I really love it. So I hope you'll give it a try. So is there a difference between self-regulation and self-control? Jessica Stillman, who has written extensively about it, and I have the article in the show notes for you, has this to say. Self-control is about inhibiting strong impulses. Self-regulation, reducing the frequency and intensity of strong impulses by managing stress load and recovery. Ah, (laughs) that's a lot. In fact, self-regulation is what makes self-control possible, or in many cases, unnecessary. And then she talks about the work of Andrew Huberman. And by the way, he has a wonderful podcast called The Huberman Lab. And I've not only got the URL for that in the show notes, but I also have a short YouTube video of him talking about just what Jessica's talking about. Okay, so Huberman explains that there's a part of the brain called the basal ganglia that has two important circuits. One is the go function, which, as the name implies, works to propel us into action. Whether you want to pick up a glass of water or train for a triathlon, you'll need your go function to go, to start. But the go function is only half the story. We also have a mirror image no-go function that is responsible for inhibiting impulses. This is the part of our brain that needs to fire if we're going to stick with that difficult project or resist a delicious cookie. Whenever your kindergarten teacher told you to quit squirming and sit still in class, she was training your no-go function. Maybe that's what my mother was trying to do with the whole T-H-I-N-K thing. The trouble is that as we get older, we often get fewer and fewer opportunities to exercise this no-go circuit. Huberman says, we move toward the things that are important to us. We're emailing. We're always doing go, 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 go. Even if you're scrolling Instagram or something, it's a go type function. We rarely rehearse our no-go functions and they grow weaker. So how do you practice this no-go function? Try this. Next time you want to pick up your cell phone, don't. Next time you want to speed just a little bit to make it through that yellow light, don't. Next time you want to interrupt someone when they're talking, don't. Stop. Wait. Here are some other ways. You can set time goals for yourself. I do this all the time when I'm writing an episode of self-work. I say, so I'm going to write for 45 minutes and then I'll take a break. And about 30 minutes later, when I suddenly remember I need to take something out of the freezer for dinner, I don't. I wait. I don't follow that impulse to do that right when I think about it. I also have people in my practice who are trying to change their behavior to do something like this. Now I have Huberman's term for it. For example, a woman comes to mind who was eating Big Macs too often. I asked her to do this. Turn into McDonald's, drive one time around the building before you get in line. So her no-go function was to not get in line immediately. The next step in that process was to resist turning in at all to McDonald's and drive around the block. Then if she still wanted the Big Mac, go on and get in line. 
when she began to do that, when she began practicing no-go, it helped change her behavior much more than her heaping shame on herself for her choices. Now, if there are eating disorder issues here, that's more complex, obviously. Now, if you hear your kids screaming at one another or your dog manages to get into the fridge, you've got to take action, right? But you can rehearse no-go control and you'll get better at it. And neuroscientists like Huberman will remind you that you're building new neural pathways every time you no-go. So what about self-motivation, our last ego skill to discuss today? So I'll talk about myself a little here. People often ask me, how did you find time to write a book? And how do you find the time to do a podcast? Now, let me say first, I'm definitely a workaholic. I'm much happier busy. And although I don't have perfectly hidden depression, because I also love introspection and connecting with all my emotions, I've always had lots of energy. But why am I doing a podcast? Why write a book? Why not something else to do with my time? And that's where self-motivation comes in. Here's some pretty neat quotes about motivation. Mark Twain, the secret of getting ahead is getting started. Michael Jordan, I've missed more than 9,000 shots in my career. I've lost almost 300 games. 26 times I've been trusted to take the game-winning shot and missed. I have failed over and over and over again in my life, and that is why I succeed. Here's a Chinese proverb. The best time to plant a tree was 20 years ago. The second best time is now. And here's a quote from a woman named Michelle Rees, who's a Los Angeles news anchor. And I loved this one. If people are doubting how far you can go, go so far that you can't hear them anymore. <laughs> I really liked that. And of course, the inevitable Tony Robbins says, people are not lazy. They simply have impotent goals. That is goals that do not inspire them. Before you can learn how to self-motivate, you need to find your why. You need a compelling purpose that goes beyond material things or climbing the career ladder. Remember just a few minutes ago when we were talking about being true to your values? That, to me, is where you can always connect with self-motivation, because what you're doing has meaning for you. And as Michael Jordan said, I failed over and over again in my life, and that is why I succeed. You have to be willing to fail. Let's talk about the book I wrote, Perfectly Hidden Depression. I've never wanted to write a book, ever, ever. But my motivation was the message, the urgent message, of the dangers of being emotionally over-controlled, of having trauma in your background that you never worked through. Now, I'll tell you, 39 publishers turned down the book. 39 out of 40. <laughs> that was a lot. It's a great idea, but we don't think people who need to seem perfect will buy a book on depression. It actually was a good point. But I was motivated to keep on. And the podcast... It generally takes up a full day of my weekend, sometimes more. So why do I do it? Because I believe in the power of therapy, and I'm tired of the many misconceptions that are out there about mental illness and its treatment. But when I started, did I have any idea how many people would tune in? Absolutely not. But I was willing to go down in a blaze of mediocrity if no one listened. Now, the fact that many do is also very motivating, and I'm very grateful to all of you. But the podcast started with me at 62 years of age, beginning something new, risking because my values were at stake and still are at stake. It's what I could do about a problem, or at least I could try. Remember our motto, what can you do about it? You can do the same thing. 
You can practice self-regulation through knowing your triggers, through mindfulness practice and cognitive reframing. You can practice self-control through 15 times a day choosing a no-go function like Andrew Huberman describes. And you can set goals that have to do with your values. They can be simple. In fact, simple is normally good. Those will be far easier to stick with. It will feel like it's a worthy risk to take because it's self-motivating simply to be trying. It fits with your values. Speak pipe message from drmargaretrutherford.com. Let's listen today to this listener voicemail. Dr. Margaret, I am the mother of two grown children, a boy and a girl. They are both very successful financially. However, they are extremely disrespectful to my husband and to me. My husband and I both did our best with them. We let them be themselves. We talked to them about everything. They are very secret. I respect that. But I don't understand their disrespectful attitudes towards us, towards myself in particular. They have had no issues with drugs or crime, and I really don't understand. Sometimes I don't even think they are from my body. Perhaps you can help. Thank you for listening. When I listened to this woman, dozens of ideas came to mind of how this situation might have come to be. I saw that she'd read a post I'd written when a parent's unconditional love is worn away. So I got an idea from that of where her heart might be. Certainly you could hear how strongly she feels that both her children are critical of her and her husband. She doesn't say whether or not her husband is also the father of those children. If not, there could be possible leads there. In divorce situations, I often hear about how children, both young and older, feel they must side with one parent, either through the manipulation of one parent or perhaps due to the divorce being highly conflictual. But what comes across loud and clear is her pain at not recognizing the children she reared anymore. She doesn't state what their criticism is about. Maybe they aren't specific about that, are simply rude or mean-spirited. So there's so much I don't know, it's a little hard to respond. But what I would definitely recommend is that this mom look at what she does have control over and see where that leads her. For example, I worked with a couple recently who both had been married before and had experienced very, very difficult divorces, especially the dad. They'd been together for several years and had finally moved in together. Two of the adult children refused to have anything to do with their dad's new partner. Now, before I got involved, the partner, she'd met with those children and had taken responsibility for some of what she'd done. She'd had too much to drink at a party, for example, in front of children, and she'd apologized. But there had been a little defensiveness. I'm sorry, but I, you know, whatever. She had said that, for example, and I suggested that she stay away from saying, I'm sorry, but... But even meeting with them didn't change things. It wasn't enough or didn't seem to be. So what should this couple do? Should they never have all their families together? They were miserable about the whole thing. So after meeting with them a couple of times and realizing the depth of their commitment to one another, I suggested that they meet together with these adult children. 
and that the dad talk about his expectations of those children and tell them he hoped that they'd work on forgiveness, any lingering divorce issues, whatever. But he also, he wasn't going to choose between them and his new partner. He loved them all deeply. And stating that is what he had control over. I certainly recommended that he not say that in a stern manner, but in a very loving manner, and that he hoped that they would work with him on this. He and his new partner would do their part if they would try to do theirs. Now, this mom is disappointed in her kids, no doubt about it. So I recommend that she search for or be open to an appropriate, not vicious, discussion of what her children's attitudes could be linked to. Again, I'm not suggesting that she accept them being vicious. Maybe she should meet singly in order to see how each feels as an individual, but also talk about her own hopes and expectations for a future relationship. A lot of times when a mother and daughter, for example, will be at each other's throats in session, I'll say, let's stop for a second. Where do you see this relationship going in five years? Where do you want it to go? It kind of stops them in their tracks. And they say, well, I don't want to still be arguing. And so I can say, so what can you do today to try to create that future for yourself? The question asks both parties to try and see how their choices today are going to create the future. And that can be powerful. The situation is very difficult. And I certainly hope that all involved can find a more respectful place with one another. I want to thank you all for being here today. I especially want to show my gratitude to Tyler Harkson, who left a review of Perfectly Hidden Depression on Amazon. This book called me out for sure, but it definitely helped me understand what perfectionism skills are great to have and which are the ones draining me of life and self. It brings a lot of awareness to your current behaviors and explains the reasoning behind it. I hope what you mean, Tyler, by calling you out simply means that you were somewhat surprised to find yourself in the pages. A lot of people have told me that, and that that recognition is sometimes a little painful. But I'm so glad overall that it was very helpful to you. Again, Perfectly Hidden Depression is available anywhere you buy books, and is not just for perfectionists, but for any of you who want to tightly control your emotions. There are lots of ways of reaching out to me. You can email me at askdrmargaret at drmargaretrutherford.com or you can use the speak pipe function, which is a part of your show notes today, as well as on my website at drmargaretrutherford.com. And if you subscribe there, you'll get a weekly newsletter that introduces the weekly podcast to you as well as a blog post and catches you up on anything else that's been going on with me. I had to have a hospital report in my last one because I split my head open and had a little bit of a head injury there. So (laughs) I'm doing fine. I'm doing fine. I was lucky I didn't have a concussion. But again, I'm very grateful for your presence here. Please take very good care in what are difficult times in many, many, many ways. I'm Dr. Margaret, and this has been Self Work.